have something big to celebrate. Today is the 10-year anniversary of opening this new campus. Amen. On July 20th, 2008, was our first Sunday here. How many of you were here on that morning? Raise your hand. Yeah, a number of you. And now here we are 10 years later. We're not getting any older, by the way. It's just 10 years have gone by. Now, I want to say a couple of things about this as we scroll some slides of how the building um, began to be built and a couple of other things. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to so many of you who were so deeply involved in this whole relocation. For the people that led our, our relocation committee, our construction committee. I mean, I want to say thank you publicly uh, to Gary Bollier, Gary Dossie, Gary Martin, to Ken Peterson, Mac Earhart, Chuck Stair. For others that invested literally hundreds and thousands of hours so that this vision would become a reality. God uses volunteers in incredible ways here at Wheaton Bible Church, and we saw that 12, 11, 10 years ago as this, the pieces of this were being put together. And the second thing, and actually more importantly that I want to say, is that we want to glorify God this morning for all that he has done in expanding our ministries as a result of this relocation. If you've been around a while, those of you that raise your hand, you remember what parking was like in the old building in downtown Wheaton. I had people who knew me say, you know, I would never go to your church, Rob, because I'll be locked in until the cows come home before I can get my car out. And we, part of the reason we were relocated was to unclog the arteries, external arteries, internal arteries. But the primary reason we lo relocated, and we just heard this from Lon in the video, is so that more and more people would love God, grow together, and reach the world. And I can't begin to tell you how God has worked to that end. I mean, the way he uses this campus the way God has worked in the communities around us, what God has done over the last 10, last 10 years in West Chicago through our Pointe ministry, now our new campus in Streamwood, what God has done around the world with our growing global commitment, the way we are using increasingly nationals to reach other nationals with the gospel of Jesus Christ. These last 10 years have been flat, amazing to the glory of God. Only eternity will, will reveal the number of people that have come to Christ, grown in Christ, uh, people that have been healed spiritually, the way God ha has worked. Only eternity will reveal the disciples, uh, uh, the, the blessings people have experienced. And this morning, I would be remiss if I did not say glory to God. Amen? And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for these last 10 years as we embark on this aggressive, bold, new five-year vision. I find so much confidence in looking in the past and seeing what you have done 
and honoring the vision we had beginning 15 years ago for this new campus. So God, as you have blessed us in the past, I ask that you would bless us going forward, that Jesus would be honored, that the communities around us would be changed, that you would bring renewal and revival to your glory, to your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. My world was turned upside down by the words of Jesus. You know how you flip a pancake to cook it? The words of Jesus flipped my life. And the Spirit of God has been cooking me ever since. This past Thursday, I was on Moody Radio's three-hour morning program. It's called Carl and Crew. And during the course of the conversation I had uh, with this young lady who was hosting in Carl's absence, sort of out of the blue and kind of randomly, she asked me this question, and I've been thinking about it ever since. She asked me the question, "Hey, hey, Rob, when you came to Christ, did you come to Christ because there were problems in your life? And I immediately said no. Lots of people, however... Uh, come to Christ because they sense a vacuum, a, a hole in their life, a need, or they're facing something, and God sovereignly steps in and draws them to himself because they sense they're just overwhelmed apart from divine intervention. But that didn't happen to me. You see, I loved my life before I came to Christ, so I didn't come to Christ because of need. I came to Christ because of truth. I could not escape, I could not explain away the truth of the words of Jesus. I mean, Jesus claims in the Gospels, and I was reading the Gospel of Mark, to be the God of the universe. He says, either you know me or you don't know me, either you believe in me or you don't believe in me, and if you do believe in me, you're going to heaven, and if you don't, you're going to hell. And as I read and as I studied and I thought about this, I realized that there are only three options when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. Either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And God opened my eyes. And by his mercy and by the power of his spirit, I chose the Lord. But it wasn't because I was unhappy. It was because that Jesus claimed to be the only way to forgiveness, the only way to heaven, the only way to ultimate happiness. Now I say this because this morning I want to look at some equally important, potent words of Jesus about prayer. He's going to say some things in the passage we're going to look at that you may not have thought about, that you may not expect. I want to look at why Jesus tells us prayer is one of the most important things we will ever do in this life. So to get there, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 11. 
In the first four verses of Luke chapter 11, we have the famous Lord's Prayer. Our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. The Lord's Prayer is important because in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us how to pray, what to say, uh, how to format, what the flow should be in our prayers. But the section I want to look at this morning begins in verse 5, right after the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus addresses the question why we should pray, why prayer is so very important. So I want you to stand with me as we listen to these words of Jesus. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 5, Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up, and I can't give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You may be seated. On any given Sunday, like right now, there will be people among us who are at very different points spiritually, very different points as they relate to Christianity. So we're talking about prayer this morning. There will be a number of you in, of you in here who care deeply about prayer, but there will be some of you that don't pray at all. And so when we read these words, you might be thinking, well, here, uh, Jesus is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to his disciples. And uh, this doesn't have anything to do with me. And you would be wrong. Why? Because prayer is a clue to your heart. to the nature of your soul, to what you have been built for. You've heard people say in the past, uh, there's no atheists, there's no non-believers in foxholes. And what they mean by that is when the bullets are flying, when a loved one is seriously ill, or where there's this big looming problem on the horizon, uh, people turn to God and people pray because they're desperate. But when we say that, we miss something. C.S. Lewis said, if you want to know what's in your basement, you've got to surprise it. 
And what he meant is if you want to know what's crawling around in your old, I mean really old British basement, then you need to turn the lights on. Crises are like that. Crises turn the lights on. Because we don't have time to think, we are just reacting. I've seen this over and over over the years in the emergency room when a loved one has suddenly died. In those moments, you discovered the real you. And more often than not, Christians and non-Christians turn to prayer. Will you pray for me? How can I help you? I, I, I want you to pray. Will you ask other people to pray? And I mention this because prayer isn't something we merely do when we're desperate. Prayer is natural. Not unnatural. It's a part of what it means, now follow me, to be human. But others say, no way, people just pray because they're desperate. No. When you are most human, you pray. When your defenses are down, when you're over your head, when your heart is breaking, when you've been slammed up against your limits and you know you're limited, when you're like the man in the parable and you have no bread. You don't just turn to a friend, you turn to God and you pray. But the world says, no, God doesn't exist. So in those moments, you need to suck it up, you need to be tough, you need to take charge, you need to be in control. But as somebody once said, if you do that, then you're no different than Genghis Khan or Hitler or or Stalin who think they are in charge, who don't understand their limits and are out of touch as a result with their humanity. But when you realize you're mortal, you're vulnerable, you're without bread, then you are most human and you pray. So the first reason Jesus calls us to pray, the first reason why he tells us prayer is so important is because according to this parable that begins in verse 5 and travels through the end of verse 8, you and I are most human when we pray. Prayer humanizes us. We know our limits. Uh, We know we're not in charge. And when you understand that, it humbles you. And as the parable suggests, it gives you the resources to help others. Your ministry for God flows from your intimacy with God. can't function apart. Now let me go on. There's a second reason uh, Jesus tells us we should pray, and I want to have a little fun with this because this is just kind of out there. And Jesus says, pray because I 
I answer the prayers of those who are shamelessly audacious in their prayers. So look what he says in the second half of verse 8. Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So in the parable, the man in crisis comes to a neighbor, he comes to a friend in the middle of the night. He has this huge problem. He's got a guest. He has no bread. So he doesn't ask for a loaf. He asks for three because he lived in a world where hospitality was everything. But the man refuses. He says, I'm not going to get up. It's too complicated. It's too inconvenient. But finally he does. Why? Because of the shameless audacity of the man asking. So what in the world do those two words mean? Well, in the original Greek behind our English, it's actually one word, not two, and it means boldness to the point of rudeness. Boldness to the point of rudeness. It's a term for aggressiveness, for relentlessness, for impudence, for impertinence, for gall. Now, no other religion in the world teaches this as an approach to God. Common sense doesn't even expect this. What Jesus is telling us is prayer is bothering God. The word bother is used in verse 7. So when Jesus commands us to pray in verse 9, ask, and then promises to answer our prayers in, in verse 10, we must understand and interpret asking, seeking, and knocking in light of what Jesus has said about being shamelessly audacious. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying prayer isn't something casual. It's not something hit or miss. It's not a one and done. I mean, you go to somebody's house, and you knock on the door. You don't just knock once. If you knock on the door once, they may, uh, who's ever inside the house may say, well, what was that noise? It was, well, it must have been a bird hitting the window. So when you go to knock on somebody's door, it's not once, it's... And you keep knocking until they come to the door. Jesus is saying, keep knocking. Jesus is saying it's not one and done. It's not something casual. A prayer isn't something you do half-heartedly. It's not something you do when you got two minutes and a couple other things on your mind. Here, Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus are teaching us God answers prayer because of our aggressiveness, because of our relentlessness, and because of our confidence he has the bread. Now, let me take this a step further. Actually, uh, the passage takes us several steps further. So let's go on and let's reread beginning in verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then, if you then, rather, though you are evil, know how much to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more, how much more, 
will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, do you see the change in metaphors? Jesus began with the metaphor that God is your neighbor, God is your friend. Now, in these last three verses, he shifts and talks about God as your Father in heaven. Jesus is talking about the Christian doctrine of adoption. That the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, God adopts you into his divine family. You become a child of the living God with all the blessings, all the privileges, all the resources of the God of the universe. This is a family metaphor here. It's a family thing. So we pray and we approach God, not merely because he's a friend or not because he's a genie who we think will give us whatever we want, but because he is our father. And we, and here's part of the point of the metaphor, are his little children. Little children. And you and I are the young child. And just like a young child who trusts in his father and continually bugs his father, asks his father, and it's all very appropriate, so you and I ask God. We pray. We bring our requests to God. We trust in God, and the metaphor says we bother God. We shamelessly, audaciously ask God. Let me illustrate this. Genesis chapter 18. Abraham, who was the father of the nation of Israel, isn't a child in Genesis 18, but he illustrates what the passage is talking about. In Genesis 18, demonstrating that there is justice in the world and God is a God of justice, God announces to Abraham that he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of sin in those cities. Now, Abraham responds as a child. And he's unwavering in his trust of God. But he begins to bug God, to challenge God. So Abraham says, now wait a minute, God. If there are 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, will you destroy it? And God says, no, if there are 50 righteous people, Abraham, I won't. And then Abraham says, well, what about 45? Then he says, what about 40, 30, 20, and 10? And finally, God relents and says, Abraham, if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom, I will not, I will not destroy it. What is Abraham doing? He's knocking, 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 knocking. He's relentlessly persistently, aggressively, as a little child, requesting from his Father who is in heaven, and God answers his prayer. Or, or picture in your mind a world leader. Imagine a world leader. And she is an incredible world leader. And you know how it is with uh, uh, people in those kind of roles. I mean, it's impossible for anyone to get an appearance with them. 
uh, the screening and all of that, and their schedules are so full. Yet this particular world leader, who's a good world leader, is in a meeting with other world leaders, and it's a really important meeting. But suddenly, about 20 minutes into it, the door is flung open, and little five-year-old Hector runs into the meeting, climbs on his mother's lap, and he says, Mommy, I love you. Will you play with me? And the meeting stops for about 30 seconds. And the whole world falls apart. But this wonderful world leader says to five-year-old Hector, Hector, mommy can't play with you now, but I will later. And he runs out. Not even a spouse would interrupt a meeting like that. Only a little child. Jesus is saying, be that child. You and I don't pray in part because we don't understand what it means to be adopted. We don't understand the privileges of our adoption. We don't understand how much God loves us. So look at what Jesus says about this subject in the Gospel of John chapter 1. And let's pick it up in verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, that is receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, He gave, notice, the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. That is a statement by Jesus about spiritual adoption. And what he is telling us is adoption isn't about merit, It's about status. It's the status God gives us by grace. So it was the first day of kindergarten. And the kindergarten teacher, this uh, delightful teacher, was going through the rules of kindergarten for her kindergarten students. And she said, now if you have to go to the bathroom, then raise your hand and hold up two fingers. And then she heard a voice from the back of the room say, Teacher, how does that help? Okay. I don't think this side gets it. I think you guys get it. You know, that's how we feel about prayer. If we're honest, how does it help? Man, I've been praying about this. I've been praying about... A, B, and C for, uh, for months and for years, and it's not happening. Jesus is saying, don't think that way. I answer prayer, God answers prayer. When you relentlessly, persistently, shamelessly, boldly trust in me as your father and approach me as a child, So I wonder this morning, is prayer the steering wheel of your life or a spare tire? To get your family to stand on its feet, you've got to get on your knees. Now there's a third reason Jesus tells us to pray. And that is prayer solves 
our problems. Or better, more specifically, prayer solves how we approach our problems. Now here we're going to step deeply into this passage. This is the last half of the last verse, verse 13, where Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now Jesus is speaking to his disciples, to Christians, so he's promising the Holy Spirit to Christians. But we know based on the rest of the New Testament, that the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells a believer, and that is permanent. It is eternal. So Jesus has to be talking about something else here than that permanent uh, one-time indwelling the moment we believe. What's Jesus talking about? Well, commentators like to point us to John chapter 16 and verse 14. Where Jesus, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? To point us to, to Jesus. He will glorify me. He will honor me. He will uh, exalt me. So in verse 13, Jesus, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus is referring to an intimate awareness of the beauty and the love and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ in your heart. And it's mediated and it's revealed. And it's poured into you by the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit, in other words, is Jesus Christ indwelling your heart by faith. We looked at that last week in Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. And so what does this mean? Well, as I said a couple weeks ago, it means that Jesus not merely walks alongside you and guides you if you're a believer in Christ, but Jesus scoops you up into his arms and carries you, and he whispers to you, and he laughs with you, and he uh, blesses you. Why? Because he loves you. He delights in you. He went to infinite lengths to die for you. He will never let you go. And one day, he will glorify you. He will make you perfect. And he will take all the bad out of your life and all the bad out of the world. And that's what Jesus is promising. The experience by the Holy Spirit, mediated by the Holy Spirit, of this sense of being carried in the arms of Jesus. Uh, take Costco. I have a deep concern for the people of Wheaton Bible Church, including my wife, that we spend too much time at Costco. <laughs> you're walking through Costco, you're doing some shopping, and they have these wonderful samples of food, and you sample every single one, and they're good. You know the world's like those samples? Sex, money, power, education, your job, your family, your house. They're all good things, but they're just samples. Jesus is the meal. When Paul, or uh, when Jesus promises God the Father will give us the Holy Spirit, he's promising us that Jesus is going to give us not the samples, but the meal himself. 
So when we come to this verse, verse 13, Jesus is not promising to give you anything you ask for. A new car, a bunch of money, uh, perfect children. I mean, you fill in the blank. The promise here is that Jesus will give you more of himself. So let's say you have a, a major family problem going on. Or maybe it's a relationship thing or, or, or a job thing. Jesus is not promising to be a genie in heaven that grants your every request. You see, you and I want relief. Jesus is promising to give you more of himself. as you go through your problems to give you the experience of him. So here's what that means. If you're angry and if you're frustrated and if you find yourself distancing yourself from Jesus and shutting down in prayer and not really praying, then you, have, you don't have a prayer problem, you have a fatherhood problem. You don't understand your adoption. And you're ignoring the promise that Jesus is making here. Let me illustrate this with the Apostle Paul. Great illustration of unanswered prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's look at these words. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, this is Paul, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. It's a lovely thought. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now get this. That is why for Christ's sake I delight. I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now let's go back to the first part of that verse. This is both an unanswered prayer and an amazing response to unanswered prayer. Paul had a health problem, a, a thorn in the flesh, so he pleaded with God to take it away, and God said no. He said, Paul, you're going to live with this issue the rest of your life. You're going to live with this pain the rest of your life. But your ministry will not suffer. Furthermore, because of it, I'm going to teach you how to depend upon me even more. And Paul says, okay. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, do you see how this relates to what Jesus is saying in verse 13? Paul wanted what Jesus is promising. He wanted a deeper, a more vital spiritual life regardless of the circumstances. Do you? Do you really? As another has said, God gives you not what you want, but what you would have asked for if you knew everything God knows. And we don't. So Jesus says, pray for more of the Spirit. 
So in the midst of your problems, you'll know how to approach your problems. And then he tells us that even though we as fathers and mothers are evil, and if our, our, our son or daughter came to us and asked for fish for dinner, we would never give them a snake or eggs for breakfast. We would never give them a scorpion. How much more so? How much more so our Father, whose love is infinite, unbending, unyielding. He never forgets you. No one loves you like Jesus. How much more will God love you as his child? So you have a choice. Are you going to believe Jesus' words about prayer? Are you going to go against the grain and accept suffering, accept unanswered prayer? Are you going to seek Jesus with all of your heart? Are you going to, or are you going to settle for the samples and miss the only meal in life? Don't do that. You show me how you pray, I'll show you whether or not you really believe the words of Jesus. Here Jesus is offering you the solution to your propensity to self-destruct in crisis. Shamelessly, audacious, pray. Uh, pray for more of the Spirit. And we know God will answer, not just because Jesus promises it here, but because one day, one terrible day, God refused to answer the prayer of Jesus. The Garden of Gethsemane. Father, take this cup from me. And God refused. <clears throat> Why? Because of the gospel. So on the cross, as Jesus bore our guilt, God treated Jesus the way we deserve so that the moment we believe, we will be treated the way Jesus deserves Jesus' prayers were rejected so ours would be accepted. Jesus got the snake. Jesus got the scorpion. So we could enjoy the lavish food of the table of our Father forever. And so if you have never done so, Come to Jesus. Say to him, I'm a child. I have seen my limits. I need you. I receive you. You died for me. And let's do that right now. Let's pray. I believe the Spirit is speaking to some of you about your standing with God. And I want to invite you to come to Jesus right now by saying, as I just said, Father, I'm a little child. 
and I come to you. Thank you for dying for me. I need you. I receive you. I receive the forgiveness you offer me in the death of Jesus. Change me. Bless me. Father, will you forgive me and us for our lack of prayer? Will you help us to, like a pancake, be flipped by these words of Jesus? In his name, amen. As we sing this song in response to God's word this morning, we are going to have brothers and sisters here in the front. We invite you to come and pray. You need prayer? This is the moment. We don't want you to leave with a burden in your heart. This is the moment when we come and pray for one another. We pray with each other. Let's stand up, please. All of us, if you need prayer, please come to the front. Come seek someone. Pray with someone. Let's, let's put into action what God has spoken into our lives. And if you, if you remain in your seats, let's sing this song to the Lord as a prayer.
God's people said, Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent in a spirit of surrender. Have a great day.